Thanks, Dwayne. Well, the ways of destroying a church are many and colorful. So says D.A. Carson in his excellent little book on 1 Corinthians called The Cross and Christian Leadership. He writes, raw factionalism will do it. Rank heresy will do it. Taking your eye off the cross and letting other more peripheral matters dominate the agenda will do it, admittedly more slowly than frank heresy, but just as effectively over the long haul. Building the church with superficial conversions and wonderful programs that rarely bring people into a deepening knowledge of the living God will do it. Entertaining people to death, but never fostering the beauty of holiness or the centrality of self-crucifying love will build an assembly of religious people, but it will destroy the church. Gossip, prayerlessness, bitterness, sustained biblical illiteracy, self-promotion, materialism, all of these things and many more can destroy a church. Well, we're in this sermon series through 1 Corinthians, and we are discussing six church challenges that Paul deals with in this letter to the Corinthians, and that will eventually face every church to some degree. They're certainly in full view here in the church in Corinth. Now, we're spending three weeks, about three weeks, on each challenge, and we began two weeks ago by looking at the first challenge, which is the challenge of division. We've already looked at the antidote for division in the first nine verses of chapter one, And last week, we looked at the reality or the fact of division in chapter 1, verse 10 through chapter 2, verse 16. And Lord willing, this morning, what we're going to do is conclude the first challenge by looking at the solution to division in chapters 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians. Now, throughout these first four chapters, Paul is particularly concerned with this subject of division in the church and the factionalism that is tearing the church apart through squabbles and jealousy and one-upsmanship. Now, the believers in Corinth were adopting this attitude of the surrounding Corinthian culture, and they were bringing that surrounding cultural attitude about leadership and factions into the church. In speaking, Paul is writing to them and telling them, that they are prizing manner over matter, honor over humility, power over people, and charisma over character. And so Paul is trying to teach them in these first four chapters the way they should respond according to the gospel relating to this subject of division, how they can overcome division through a gospel-shaped perspective. So what is a gospel-shaped perspective? look like? Of what does it consist? Well, we're going to see that in chapters 3 and 4 this morning. This morning, we're going to look at six ways we solve division in the church through the gospel. Here's the first one. We solve division in the church through spiritual maturity. We solve division in the church through spiritual maturity. Now, we've already read these first four verses of 1 Corinthians 3, so I'm not going to reread them again. But they summarize this truth. A spiritual mature person, a spiritually mature person, seeks to think about things as Christ would have them think. This is, in fact, what Paul says in the preceding verse before chapter 3 gets started. Remember, sometimes these divisions and chapter divisions are helpful, uh, but Paul didn't have them. 
He didn't have a chapter 3 and a chapter 4. He had the letter to the Corinthians. And we named it 1 Corinthians later on, and then we put the address markers in it for chapters and verses so we can find things more easily. But notice in chapter 2, verse 16, right before he begins to speak on the subject of spiritual maturity, he says, For who has understood the mind... He who is up, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, what does Paul mean by having the mind of Christ? He means, as Christians, we are called and we have the ability, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, to think as Christ would have us to think. To live life as Christ would have us to live. So Paul says that he can't address this church As, even though they have the mind of Christ, he can't presently address them as spiritual people who would have the mind of Christ. But as he says, people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So spiritually mature Christians recognize that contributing to division in the church is a sign of being a spiritual baby. It's not a sign of spiritual maturity to be a divisive person. Paul should not have had to review with them what he had to review with them in chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians, which were the things of the cross, what the cross did, how the cross is the, is the wisdom of God and how it saved them. He should not have had to go back and review all those things with them. That was what he called spiritual milk for them that he gave to the church when he planted the church. This was not an inherent inability on the part of the Corinthians to receive spiritual food, but the Corinthians were unable to receive it because they were choosing to be worldly. They were choosing to think according to the flesh, not according to the spirit. They were choosing the mind of the world instead of the mind of Christ. They were operating as babies instead of adults in Christ. These are the metaphors he uses of flesh and spirit and babies and adults and immature and mature to try to get at the idea that they were behaving in ways that were contrary to the gospel. And so Paul says, I can't teach you anymore until you get the basics. Until you understand what the gospel is and how the gospel is meant to influence and shape the church community so that it's to be united, we're pointless in moving on to anything else right now. So the spiritual immaturity of the Christians is of their own or the, of the Corinthian Christians is of their own doing. They had every opportunity to grow in Christ. Paul was with them for 18 months, a year and a half he spent with this church planting and teaching them. And then they had follow-up visits from Apollos and extended time with the apostle Peter. So the Corinthians had received thorough and solid biblical teaching to know better than the way they were behaving. And Paul's point is that spiritual maturity is evidenced by pursuing godly unity in the body of Christ. Conversely, immaturity, and maybe even unconversion, is revealed through division. People of the Spirit should not divide over church teachers. The church is at its best when it's, ba- when it's on the battlefield fighting the real enemies of Satan and sin and death and hell and the grave. But the church is at her worst when she's in the barracks fighting one another and fighting the culture. Listen, brothers and sisters, Christians who are regularly and unrepentantly fighting with other Christians are spiritually immature at best or pseudo-Christians at worst. 
Christians who engage the issues of the culture with time, energy, attention, effort, and money, but don't preach the gospel and don't make disciples are fighting the wrong war. Even when we must engage in conflict as God's people, mature Christians do so with gentleness, openness to reason, patience, prayer, charity, and thinking the best of their brother or sister in Christ. If we read into their words, our meanings, and put our own constructions on what they say or fail to take the time to be quick to listen and slow to speak, we are out of step with the Spirit of God and revealing spiritual immaturity in our lives. But spiritually mature Christians recognize that unifying God's people around Christ is a primary purpose for which Christ died. And therefore, spiritually mature people recognize, I don't want to strive against what Jesus' blood has purchased, which is a unified church. Matthew Henry says, Contentious and quarrels about religion are sad evidences of remaining carnality or sinfulness. True religion makes men peaceful and not contentious. Because peacefulness and non-contentiousness is a mark of spiritual maturity. So that's the first way we solve division in the church, is we refuse to be spiritual babies, and we grow up and become spiritual adults who can handle disagreement, and can handle not getting our way, and can handle not breaking up the body of Christ over our preferences, but rather submit our minds and our hearts to Christ and desire what he desires. Secondly, we solve division in the church through gospel centrality. We solve division in the church through gospel centrality. Notice verse 5. Paul says, what then is, a, is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul says, why is it merely human? Why is it a manifestation of spiritual immaturity to divide into factions and use personal connections and affinities to try to gain power and position in the church? Because it means we're looking to human beings and their gifts and talents for power, forgetting that any success we have in ministry comes from God. Spiritual mature Christians recognize that God is the one who builds the church. The gospel is what builds the church. Yes, the Lord does use his people, but that does not mean the growth and health of the church are finally due to people. They are not finally due to people. Believers, by the grace of God, may have significant roles in the kingdom of God, yet they do not determine one bit the expansion and success of the kingdom of God. A farmer can't credit the growth of his crops to anything other than what his efforts didn't put into it. Right? He may have worked very hard to plant and water, as Paul says in Apollos, and he did. But God gives the growth. 
This is confirmed in many of Jesus' parables about the nature of the kingdom of God. I'll just share one of them with you. One of my favorites is Mark 4, verses 26 to 28. Jesus says, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. That's what Paul and Apollos did. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he does not know how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grown in the ear. So he looks out and he says, I went to work, and he, I slept, I worked hard, and I went out and I looked at the field, and I said, how'd that happen? Because there were so many other factors other than the seed. So what do you believe, brother and, brother and sister? is the most decisive agent in the health and growth of Heritage Baptist Church. Pastors, preaching, kids ministry, worship team, youth programs, small groups, all those are good things, all of them are important things. But none of those are decisive things. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. So how important is it to recognize that what Jesus said is true? I will build my church. I will build it, Jesus said, not you. Nobody builds the church. Now, Paul says here, we are building. So I want to be careful that we don't go beyond what Scripture teaches here. We are contributing to the building, but we aren't building, right? It's God's blessing and use of our building that he's building. So every healthy, growing church has one person behind it, who deserves all the credit? Jesus himself. He walks among the lampstands, supplying the continual oil of his spirit, and anything of eternal value has his fingerprints all over it. So spiritually mature Christians recognize the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the foundation for everything in the church. Paul says that he's a master builder. He laid the foundation at Corinth, and the others followed and built on it like Apollos. In the ancient world, a master builder was a particularly gifted builder or architect who coordinated a construction team to carry out a specific project. Paul was not sliding his gifting or calling to do what he did. He said, I'm gifted. The Holy Spirit has called me. I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been commissioned and sent to do this. And that describes Paul well as a master builder. He planted in Acts 18, the church at Corinth. He oversaw the work and he was instrumental in establishing the gospel in that city. And then pa Apollos and Peter and others followed him. But because the foundation was already laid, they would have to be careful how they built the building. And just as the building that is not properly anchored to a foundation will not stand, so a church that's not built on the proper foundation will not stand. And so what's the foundation that Paul is calling the church to build on? Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let's be clear. No one may, indeed, Paul says, no one can lay a foundation other than Jesus Christ. That is, unless they want to build a church. Or that is, they don't want to build a church. Paul says... That Paul doesn't say that Jesus Christ is the best foundation for a church. He says he's the only foundation for the church. 
A lot of things that look like church can be built on things other than Jesus. You can draw a crowd without Jesus. You can experience songs without Jesus. You can preach without Jesus. You can build a church outwardly without Jesus, but you just can't call it church. People might call it church, but God won't call it church. D.A. Carson says, The world pants after strong leaders, but leaders in the church are first of all servants of the Lord. The world parades heroes and gurus. Christians remember that God loves to choose the weak and the lowly and the despised, the nobodies, so that no one boasts before God. The world tries to impress with rhetoric and sophistication, cherishing form more than content. Christians prize truth above style and quietly refuse to endorse any form that may prove so attractive, even diversionary, that the centrality of gospel truth is jeopardized. So brothers and sisters, we can do that by elevating secondary important doctrines to levels of first importance. We can do that by taking tertiary matters of opinion and elevating those to levels of first importance. Because it's, it's one thing to, to say that we're gospel-centered and that we're building on the, 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 the gospel, but what bricks are we laying week in and week out through our conversations, through the things we pray about, through the things that we're concerned about? The bricks that we lay, each one of us as a worker in the, build, in the kingdom of God, we're all living stones, right? And the bricks that we're laying down need to be Jesus bricks, Lots and lots of Jesus bricks. Everything in reference to Christ. Everything, every doctrine treated in reference to Christ. Every person treated in reference to Christ. It's all about Him. And we don't want it just to be a slogan or something on a mission statement. Like Heritage Baptist Church exists to be gospel-centered, which is in our mission statement. But we want that functioning in the life of our congregation. So we solve division in the church by being gospel-centered. Churches divide all over the place because they've forgotten what's most important and what's united them in the first place, which is not their political views. And it's not how they see cultural events. And it's not how they take this Bible verse, which is difficult to understand. And it's not this millennial position. And it's not this particular view of this particular thing. It's do we have in common Jesus Christ? Do we have a shared understanding of who he is? Do we have a shared understanding of how he saves? Do we have a shared understanding of how he calls us to live as his people? That is what unites the church of Jesus Christ. And anything that takes preeminence of that place as more important or more central or about which we are more passionate makes us a danger to the church of Jesus Christ as a potential tool for Satan to use to divide the church. So guard your heart, brothers and sisters. Guard your love and esteem for Christ above all things, and you'll be just fine. And we'll be just fine. But we have to keep Christ and the gospel uppermost and central in our hearts and in our affections. So first of all, we solve division in the church through spiritual maturity. Second, we, dissolve, we solve division in the church through gospel centrality. Thirdly, we solve division in the church with fearful sobriety. Fearful sobriety. Now, by sobriety here, I'm not referring to, you know, anything to do with alcohol or drugs. I'm, I'm referring to a sober mindset, a mindset that takes God seriously and takes the church seriously and takes our activities in the church and our relationships in the church seriously. This is exactly what Paul calls them to do as Christians. So how, how do we solve, why is fearful sobriety and reverence for God so important to solving division in the church? Well, because there, there is the sobriety of our work being burned up in the judgment if we don't. 
Look at verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, that is the foundation of Christ, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. So Paul's changing metaphors here. He's talked about the church as a field where he planted and watered, an agriculture metaphor. And now he's talking about the church as an architecture metaphor for, as a building. So he talked about laying the foundation and we're building on it. And we got two different types of materials. We got good material and bad material. Good material is, is material that will last to stand the test of time. Bad material is things that won't. Gold, precious stones, silver, things that will stand the test of time. Uh, wood, hay, and straw won't. So verse 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So what Paul is saying here is that a day is coming when our construction efforts are going to be evaluated. And Paul speaks of different materials that can be used before noting that the fire on the last day will be used against our building efforts and materials with only the worthy and sound things remaining behind. So his basic point is that things of great value built on the gospel will pass through judgment just fine while things not built on the gospel will be burned up and destroyed. To build with perishable things like wood, hay, and straw is to build a church with motives and methods that are not gospel-centered, but rather reflect the worldly wisdom of the age. Some builders, those who build on the gospel, will be rewarded. The others who build with non-gospel methods will still be saved, but they will have no additional reward. They may make it to heaven, but they'll come in smelling like smoke, losing everything but themselves. Now, Paul's contrasting clearly here, not every single Christian with every other Christian. He's talking about his work as an apostolic builder and those Corinthian leaders that they were looking up to that were not building that way, that were trying to divide the church up. And he's saying, if they keep doing that and you keep following them, their work's going to be burned up and your work's going to be burned up. It'll be wasted life. You may get into heaven because the blood of Jesus covered you, but your life will have been worthless. But it can be a better way. It can go a better way. You can actually go to heaven with your reward in tow. Because not that you live this sinless life, but that you built your life on the gospel and you tried to minister to others in the church on the basis of the gospel. You love Jesus and you tried to get him into other people. You tried to pass him on to others. So, as mature Christians, we should reject gimmickry in building the church. We aren't captured and we shouldn't be captured by the latest fad and trend and book or curriculum that promises some sort of explosive church growth. We shouldn't be enamored by personality or celebrity. Rather, we should just treasure God's word and build God's church by God's spirit on God's word. Because only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. But there's a second reason that we should be fearful and sober about division in the church. Because not only might we be Christians whose work is all burned up, but we may reveal ourselves to have never been Christians to begin with. That's what Paul says in verse 16 and 17. Look what he says. Do you not know 
that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. See, we need to recognize the serious personal consequences of tearing down a church. Paul speaks of the whole church in Corinth as a temple of God. But he says this temple can be destroyed. So now he's changing the metaphor again, right? He's talked about the church as a field. He's talked about the church as a building. Now he's talking about the church as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now he's not talking about the destruction of the temple in the ultimate sense. Jesus did say, right, as we already mentioned, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the universal church that Jesus is building among the nations throughout all generations can never be destroyed. But local churches can. A lack of focus on the gospel fosters division and division destroys the church. And thus, we destroy the church when we divide and focus on less important issues instead of the gospel. And what does Paul say God will do with divisive people who destroy the church? He'll destroy them. Wow. If you tear down the church, God will tear you down. If you seek to divide the church from each other, God will divide himself from you. How can he say this? Because someone who sows unrepentant division in the church is someone who has relinquished the biblical warrant for calling themselves a Christian. I want to say that again because I think those words are important. Christians can be divisive at times. We're not, we're not talking about that. I'm talking about someone who sows unrepentant division in a church is someone who has relinquished the biblical warrant for calling themselves a Christian. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 11. We've read these verses a number of times before the Lord's Supper, but I want you to appreciate them again. 1 Corinthians 11, 18 and 19. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. What does he mean? What do factions reveal? Who the real Christians are versus who the fake Christians are. The genuine are recognized by the fact that they're not being factitious and divisive. Also, Galatians 5, which we read this morning in our confession, fits of anger, jealousy, strife, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, those aren't fruit of the Spirit. Those are works of the flesh. Those are manifestations that the Spirit is not in control in our lives. Jude 17 and 19 Put it this way, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So he says, people who come into the church and sow division are worldly people who are devoid of the Spirit. They don't have the Spirit of God in their lives. So a harsh, critical Overly strict, fault-finding, exacting, and loveless spirit aligns us with Satan, not Christ. Richard Baxter says as much in his sermon, The Cure for Church Divisions, when he says, You think when a wrathful heat is kindled in you against men for their fault that it's certainly a zeal of God's exciting. But mark whether it has more wrath than love in it, and whether it tends more to disgrace a brother than to cure him or to make divisions rather than to heal them. If it be so... 
you are decided as to the author of your zeal, and it is a worse origin than you suspect. The kind of God, brothers and sisters, that we really believe in is revealed in how we treat one another. The lovely gospel of Jesus Christ positions us to treat one another like royalty, and every non-gospel position encourages us to treat each other like dirt. But we will follow through horizontally whatever we believe vertically. Our relationships with one another reveal to us what we really believe as opposed to what we think we believe. They reveal our convictions as opposed to our opinions. It's possible for the gospel to remain at a shallow level of opinion, even sincere opinion, without penetrating down to the deeper level of conviction. That's what Paul's addressing with the church at Corinth here. But when the gospel grips our convictions deep down, we embrace its implications wholeheartedly. The beautiful one another commands of the New Testament are famous, but it's also striking what one another's do not appear there. For example, humble one another, sanctify one another, scrutinize one another, pressure one another, embarrass one another, corner one another, interrupt one another, defeat one another, sacrifice one another, shame one another, marginalize one another, exclude one another, run one another's lives, confess one another's sins. Those one another's aren't in there. But when we mistreat one another, our problem is not a lack of surface niceness. It's a lack of gospel embrace. What we need is not only better manners, we need true faith. Then the watching world might start feeling that Jesus himself has come to town. Because John 13 says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. See, brothers and sisters, immature Christians are willing to tear down the church if it's in service to themselves. They are willing to divide over petty issues. But mature Christians see it as their responsibility to love the church to life, to do all they can to guard and protect its unity, to crucify their own desires and agendas for the larger good of the body of Christ. Listen, if we care more about God's name than our name, then we will work to unite the church since God's identity is best reflected in a united church. But if we care more about our name than God's name, then we will divide the church for our name's sake. Ephesians 4 makes it clear, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That's why we're one because we want to reflect the truth of who God is and who Christ is and how salvation works. It's not just to go along to get along. We have a higher agenda than that. We pursue unity in the church because it's essential to reflecting God to the world. And we pursue unity in the church because it's so essential to the mission of the church to do that. John 17, 21, Jesus prayed that we would be one so that the world may believe that you sent me. Unity is critical to the world believing that Jesus is who he said he is. So brothers and sisters, let's solve division with that kind of fearful sobriety. Fourthly, we solve division in the church with personal humility. 
We solve division in the church with personal humility. Look at verse 18 of chapter 3. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, so let him become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they're futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or the future, all are yours. And if you're Christ, then Christ is God's. 4 verse 1. This is how we should, you should regard us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. And none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? If you then receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So what is Paul doing here? He's saying we solve division in the church through personal humility. How does he think about himself? Does he think about himself as a big timer? No, he thinks about himself as a servant and as a steward. Someone who's been given a message that he didn't create to pass on. He's just a nobody trying to tell somebody about every, or he's, just, he's just nobody trying to tell everybody about a somebody who can save anybody. That's all we are, right? We're just clay pots. We're jars of clay passing on a great treasure. Nothing to be celebrated here. And Paul recognizes that his personal humility is important for the well-being of the church because much church division would be solved if people didn't think so highly of themselves. Didn't think so highly of their perspective that they got it right on the way they saw everything. Humility means recognizing how much of a fool we are and that we need God's wisdom and that we dare not go beyond what God has said in his word. That's, what, that's how they got into this problem. You know, he said, see what he says in verse 6 again? I'm trying to teach you that you may not go beyond what is written and none of you may be puffed up in favor against another. See, you're going beyond what God has required. You're starting to introduce additional levels of requirement for leadership and the way the church is to, to run. You're adding all these extra rungs. You're going you're, you're imbibing all these personality traits and position things and, and, and backgrounds and, and this sort of education and this sort of speaking style and this sort of you know, way that we do things. And, and you're looking at that, and it's not based on Scripture. It's based on worldly opinion, and you guys need to become fools so that you'll become wise. In other words, you need to embrace God's wisdom and quit embracing the world's wisdom about this. Have some humility. Submit your mind to Scripture. Some people are not satisfied unless they can express their opinion on virtually everything. Some are not happy unless they take the contrary position. They can't be content to listen and admire, but must always speak up and criticize. Their goal is to win, not love. Looking down our noses at those who disagree with us, standing in opposition to godly people and justifying ourselves at any cost is an evidence of profound lack of humility. It's profound pride. This wouldn't be the case if we realized we have everything we need in Christ. 
That's what Paul says to them. Everything is yours, Christian. You don't need to fight about anything. It all belongs to you. Why are you envying what somebody else has? You have the whole world. You're going to inherit everything that Christ owns one day. That's what he says at the end of chapter 3. It's futile to fight over this kind of stuff. Don't you realize what you have? If everything belongs to us and we belong to Christ, we have no cause for envy, strife, factions, or glory. There should be no envy in the church when we have everything. When we engage in petty behavior like this, we're like children in a room with a thousand toys fighting over a broken wooden block. Why do we fight and fuss when we own everything? Live with dignity as an adopted son or daughter of the king and rest contentedly in his love while you wait for your inheritance instead of living like a needy, abandoned, insecure child that has to fight over everything because you think this is all there is. Humility means that we don't go beyond what's written in Scripture, we embrace a low view of ourselves, but we also have a proper view of others, including our leaders. Just as Paul said, we view our leaders as servants and stewards. They're not entrepreneurs. They're not gurus. They're not independent elitist teachers. They're not some special class. They're servants. They're just stewards who are required to be faithful to the message that they've been given. The church isn't ours, brothers and sisters. The message isn't ours. Christian leaders promote the gospel, not themselves. They build the church, not their platform. Many church problems would disappear overnight if pastors and members alike would truly understand the servanthood and stewardship that is ours. That's all it is. We don't, we don't own anything. We own what we've been given by God, but we don't own anything. That's what Paul says. What do you have that you didn't receive? Everything we have is a gift. So... If we believe this, it would keep pastors from riding a high horse and lording it over the flock, and it would keep the flock from hampering and hamstringing leadership so that they're not able to fulfill the calling given to them by Christ to sow the gospel into the heart of the church. Paul's desire was to disabuse the Corinthians of the evil tendency to idolize Christian leaders and to ignore others. And so he reminds the Christians in Corinth that we are all servants of God and we're not, we're not to be given undue allegiance by the church, nor receive harsh judgment from the church. Now, in chapter 4, at the beginning, Paul is not saying that pastors are above, to be above criticism. They are not above criticism. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 and 20 says what to do when the pastor needs to be criticized. That command is a pathway for church discipline for leaders. But Paul's point is ultimately that God's judgment is the final, decisive, and real judgment, and it's the only impartial one. And so in that sense, it's the only one that really matters. He could only note that he was unaware of anything that in his own heart that he had done wrong to the Corinthians or ways that he had behaved that were inappropriate. But Paul says, that doesn't mean that I didn't do anything wrong. That doesn't mean I'm unacquitted just because I don't, my conscience is clear. The Lord will judge on that day. See, he's manifesting transparent humility that he hopes they will follow. He says, I hope you'll start looking to the Lord like that. I hope you will look to the Lord and say, Lord, examine my heart. Is there any offensive way in me? If the, I, don't, I, mean, I don't think there is, but would you, would you look at my heart to see if I'm doing anything divisive? If I'm contributing anything? I don't think I am, but, but that's what godly people ask. 
They want to know so they can not do it. Paul says, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't mean God will agree. Self-knowledge is not the final arbiter of judgment. Human beings cannot make a correct judgment on the motives of our own hearts, and we can't make a correct judgment on anyone else's heart. The Lord will reveal those motives on the day of judgment. So in all this, Paul's just manifesting genuine humility. See, brothers and sisters, the truly humble person doesn't beat themselves up, and they don't talk themselves up. They trust God, and they don't think about themselves. They aren't focused on themselves and how everyone else is treating them. They're focused on others and how kindly they've been treated by God. This is contrary to how the Corinthians were behaving, which was marked not by humility but pride. C.S. Lewis once said that if we were to meet a truly humble person, we'd never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of yourself or less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Self-forgetfulness is the truest manifestation of gospel humility. We'll move through these last two very quickly. Number five, we solve division in the church with faithful Christianity. With faithful Christianity. Look at verse eight. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. Now, Paul's getting into some sarcasm here. And would that we did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly distressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become all, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And verse 14 says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now he is writing to them in sarcastic ways here. He's contrasting his life, which represents faithful Christianity, with their life and the leaders they're wanting to follow with unfaithful Christianity. He says, look at my life. You see me living like these leaders? Don't you see me suffering? Don't you see me working? Don't you see me having late nights? Don't you see me tired? Don't you see me distressed? Don't you see me anxious? Don't you see me beaten? Don't you see me hungry? Don't you see me thirsty? Don't you see me not having all that they have? The Corinthians were prizing prosperity and personality, and Paul's carrying a cross. Because the best way to expose a counterfeit is to put it next to the genuine article. Faithfulness isn't marked by a pastor with a bright smile and perfect hair, but by the marks of discipleship that are scarred on his back. Faithfulness isn't marked by the perfect Facebook profile picture with the family on the beach. Those are good pictures. Glad you guys take them. And they're great to look at. But that's not what faithfulness is measured by. It's marked by the daily grind of training our children and teaching them the gospel. Faithfulness isn't marked by the public service that wins accolades. It's marked by the quiet commitment to daily time in the word and on your knees in secret only father knowing praying. 
Faithfulness isn't marked by being at ease in Zion, but inconveniencing ourselves in love for the church by sitting with crying babies and cleaning up messy floors and moving heavy chairs and entering into others' burdens and confronting sin and taking meals to the sick and running errands for the elderly. Faithfulness isn't marked by showing up at church to raise our social status or network with people or show off what a better person we are, but recognizing that I'm still a weak, needy saint that desperately needs bread from heaven and the encouragement of my siblings in Christ if I'm going to make it to heaven and persevere in the faith. Finally, we solve division in the church through biblical accountability. Through biblical accountability. And this is what Paul is getting ready to bring to them. Notice verse 15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. No doubt Timothy probably delivered this letter to the Corinthians. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon. And if the Lord wills, I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with a love and spirit of gentleness? So Paul is calling them to account here. And this is the final way we solve division in the church. First of all, we address the problem biblically. When we do it the preferred way, like a father to a son, we make appeals, we encourage. He offers them an appeal as their father in Christ and says, would you just imitate me here? Would you stop looking at this worldly leadership and thinking that's the way to go? And would you look at my pattern of discipleship? And would you see the cross I'm carrying? And would you pick up your cross and carry it too? He's appealing to them. You know my life. You see me dying to myself for your benefit. You die to yourself for the church's benefit too. And you quit dividing about this stuff. Good leaders don't ask people to do what they're not willing to do. And Paul has already led the way here. Paul says, inasmuch as I'm following Christ by laying my life down to help unify the church around the gospel, you do everything you can do to do exactly the same thing. But if that won't work, if encouragement won't work, and it doesn't always work, there is a place for warning as well. Some in the church were banking that Paul wouldn't be coming and they can continue carrying on exactly the way they were. And he calls them arrogant and says, I will show up. And when he does, he's going to expose these leaders for the Christless conduct of their lives by preaching the gospel and demonstrating its power to transform. He's not going to show up and punch them in the face. He's going to show up and preach the gospel and demonstrate that it's the gospel that changes people, not this stuff. And Paul would like to come in a spirit of gentleness, but he will come in a spirit of spiritual, spiritual spanking and reproof if needed. So while the steps are never to be taken hastily, sometimes it is necessary to deal with divisive people in a manner of church discipline. The New Testament is clear, Romans 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Titus 3, 10 and 11. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he's self-condemned. It seems like Paul is saying there comes a time to move on. There comes a time to turn away from somebody, to avoid them, to have nothing more to do with them, to shake the dust off your feet, 
like Jesus said. The command to avoid them releases leaders, family members, friends, co-workers, and fellow congregants from the perceived obligation and burden to stay in perpetually futile relationships. It lets tender people break with people who use and abuse them. It lets managers dismiss chronic malcontents and allows businesses to stop placating implacable clients. And it allows churches to release Christians who profess to be Christians yet will not repent of their divisiveness. This side of heaven, some relationships won't be totally reconciled, but this command doesn't permit us to bear a grudge or retain bitterness. No relationship has led No relationship has led to resentment, self-sabotaging anger, or a prison cell of unforgiveness that can be baptized in the name of Jesus as okay. Jesus gives us 70 times 7 grace. So this command to avoid is not a license to love poorly, but it is a license to develop some healthy boundaries. Walls of ice with shards of broken glass on top is not what he's talking about. There's a time to say, I tried to bring peace, and I failed, and now I'm going to avoid. We must never take this position quickly and never take it without great sorrow over failed efforts efforts at reconciliation. We always long for restoration, but in this troubled world, the Lord allows us to accept a lesser peace, the peace of moving on, knowing that we tried. So when it comes to the divisive, after preaching the gospel, after calling them to spiritual maturity, after recognizing with fearful sobriety, after calling them to personal humility, after imitating faithful Christianity and exhorting them through encouragement, they still won't heed it, remove them from the church. Remove them from the church. Because when it comes to the divisive, sometimes the only way forward is to divide. Let's pray. Father, your word is good, and your word is true, and your word is faithful, and your word is balanced. Thank you for all the ways that the Apostle Paul instructs us through that word today to think about this issue of division and solve it. Lord, we thank you that by your grace and by your restraining Holy Spirit in our lives, we are not dealing with the level of division that the Corinthians faced. We're not in factions right now fighting over which faction should take control. But Lord, we know that's all too often the case in many churches. And we say, but for the grace of God, go we. And but for a vigilant application of these things that we've talked about this morning, go we. So Lord, enable us to grow in spiritual maturity. Enable us to grow in gospel centrality. Enable us to grow in fearful sobriety. Enable us to grow in personal humility. Enable us to grow in faithful Christianity. And enable us to grow in biblical accountability. So that these sorts of things that you have put in place in the church that would solve division would be used to solve division and to preserve the testimony of the gospel, to preserve the witness of your name, and to preserve your cause here in our community of Owensboro, that people who see us and walk among us would know God is one, Jesus is real, and he's building a church. May we do all we can to fight and be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace for that vision and that vision alone. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond in worship.